Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello. Hello, everyone. Wow, you stood on me. I did. Right. Michael's not well today. I'm not, I'm not. He's running quite the tempo. Temperature, not tempo. <laughs> That's a completely different thing. And also, we've got no internet. Mm. So, um, we almost didn't have an email section, did we? But fortunately, my phone has come through with the knowledge. Except in the dining room, it doesn't get much of a signal. <laughs> So we're just going to, we'll do as many as we can possibly do before my phone says, uh, no, I can't be bothered. Don't we'll get a signal in the dining room. Up. Yeah, it's a bit cat, really. Um, have we done anything interesting this week? Fury Road? Yeah. Watch Mad Max Fury Road. That, that too late. Hmm? Why is it, why is it a month, why is it too late? Came out last month. So? We, we can't talk about the hype now. Was the hype? That was hype. Alright, see, I thought all the hype was surrounding something else. Oh yeah, that other thing. Yeah, that other thing. But yeah. this, this, I enjoyed it. I thought it was great. It was very entertaining. Movie. A, a two-hour car chase. <laughs> well, isn't that what Road Warrior was? I, I a ninety-minute car chase. Wasn't Road Warrior a like ten-minute car chase and then a lovely little family romantic movie and then fifteen minutes of vengeance? No, that was the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, that was. No, Road Warrior is the second one. Is it? You're mixing them up. It's Mad yeah. Max, Road Warrior. Beyond Thunderdome, and then right. this new one, where Max doesn't do bugger off. No. He's not really that important <laughs> to the plot, is he? It's Indiana Jones, Fury Road. Yeah. Indiana Jones don't do Navy either, is that no. what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Okay. Most popular film character ever, though, according to Empire Magazine. Is it? Indiana Jones, yeah. Oh, right. Well. I thought you meant Mad Max. No, Mad Max is probably in, though. He's I not just... been seen for 30 years, and he's the most popular character. He's a popular guy. You know, don't underestimate Max. He didn't seem that mad, though, did he, anymore? He didn't. A little bit, you know. He seemed a little bit crazy. Die, Max, son. Then you'll have my passion that, to die. That's played by Ben. You're a good guy for you. <laughs> anyway, we'll try and do an email. Uh, Lou Jacanetti's email, then. With, where's my money, honey? Which is Luke Ketch, obviously. Which we like that a great deal. Andy Dog and Little M. Andy Dog. <laughs> Little M. Do you like being Little M? Little M, y'all. <laughs> what did you use, Jab Turkeys? How come no one can email us in about the Luke Cage episode? <laughs> seriously. I don't know. Well, I mean, this show, very serious. We take it very seriously. We do. Totally. No comedy allowed. None in the slightest bit. Serious faces. We're not allowed Certainly to Certainly no inadvertent out. comedy. No. <laughs> like farting. <laughs> uh, when you guys covered Luke Cage's original series, I had to write in. I discovered Cage as a character in his second series from the early 1990s, but I don't really start to follow him until around 2000 or so while I was in college. Initially, it was the same name syndrome which drew me to the character, but soon I found myself engrossed in his world and shouting praises from the proverbial rooftops. 
Cage is a character who, like Spider-Man, works best when things are at their worst. Cage's stories typically involve him suffering one setback and indignation after another, from the coffee machine never working, to a client stiffing him, to a leak in his office, and so on and so forth. So that by the end of the issue, when he unloads on whoever his enemy is that month, it is the... It is, sorry, great cathartic release for both Luke and the reader. That his stories were often done in one or two parters means there's a nice immediacy to them, a sense of beginning, middle and end, and there's great humour in Cage's misfortunes. During one story, while battling the minions of Big Brother, Cage laments that he hasn't had any good luck since I found that place that sells these yellow shirts so cheap. The gritty, harsh, urban surrealism of the series just adds to the fun. That Cage is black is an important part of his character, but to me it's just one of the many adjectives which make him such a well-rounded and likeable individual. He's curmudgeonly, mercenary and pessimistic, but he's also honest, fur, no-nonsense and tough. Despite what a lot of internet hucksters would have you believe, Cage was a well-rounded and developed character pretty much from the start. Couple of quick points. Luke Cage did not work out of Harlem. The Gem Theatre, which is his office apartment is above, is situated in Times Square in midtown Manhattan. In the 70s, Times Square was not the touristy area it is now, instead being filled with what we might diplomatically call grindhouse theatres and generally being not so nice. Harlem is about 100 or so blocks uptown from where Luke normally operates. This is a common misconception, even among comics pros. The gem itself is operated by Luke's pal D.W. Griffith, and the gimmick is that it only shows old westerns. Cage's time at Seagate would constantly be referenced, with many characters in the series spun out of that. Dr. Bernstein would become a recurring supporting character, Shage and Comanche would become Stiletto and Discus, and are the kids of Warden Tyler Stewart and so forth. You remember Stiletto and Discus? I do. We like that. <laughs> Be less all the way. Yeah. We liked them. Cage's use of language, such as sweet Christmas and sweet sister and the like, was retconned to be euphemisms of his own creation, since Cage's grandmother, who reared him, would not tolerate profanity. I like that. All right. I think that's pretty cool. I think that's debunking a stereotype. Mm. I think that's really good. The boots, bracelets and tiara for his costume were included when he bought the Escape Artist outfit from the costume shop. The chain, which became his belt, was part of the Escape Artist act. Luke liked the tiara specifically because it helped keep his hair out of his eyes, having taken to growing his hair longer in an effort to change his look. Regarding the use of book in the context with which it was used in the series, I never assumed this to be a racial slur, especially when, as you guys pointed out, it would be used by characters such as Misty Knight. I always figured it was a code-friendly stand-in for a pejorative version of Stud, since Luke was this tall, virile, muscular, good-looking black man exposing half of his chest to the world. Later on in the series, when Kurt Busiek was handling the reins, the racial stuff would get specifically referenced, as the third chemistro... Is that right? Chemistro? If I pronounce that right? Chemistro? I don't, I don't know. Would repeatedly call Luke an Oreo, and I think you can figure out that particular slur for yourselves. Of course, Power Man and Iron Fist issue 123 tackled the issue head on, with Luke assigning to himself that his loud, angry Negro routine didn't work on someone, and the villain Glowworm using many racial epithets in his rampage. Track that one down. It's a great read. Love your courage of Luke Cage and can't wait to hear you guys talk about Iron Fist. Until then, sweet Christmas, Luke. Well, thank you very much, Luke. I appreciate you bringing in the knowledge about Luke Cage. Some good stuff, though. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that the, his grandmother wouldn't let him swear. Yeah. That's quite funny. And yeah, the book thing, I, we just thought it was still calling him a stud, didn't we? Mm-hmm. I think we said that on the show, didn't we? So, right, my phone will let me look at another email. Kurt Gruenwald's emailed in. Hey, Leyland. Remember how for several years now you have said how meticulously plan out your schedule in advance? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, you keep thinking that. Yeah, yeah. How carefully you decide exactly when and what to cover on the show so that it all works out so carefully. You, do you mean... Does he really mean this show? He could have Is been this what he means? Mm. Well, here's your wake-up call. About a year or so ago, Andrew strongly endorsed the idea of reviewing the long Halloween in the months before, in the months before sorry, October 31st, so that the final episode drops on or near to Halloween. In order to do so, Michael and Andrew both agreed that you'd have to be reminded sometime before July 1st in order to set that plan into motion. So here's a loyal listener's attempt to formally remind you prior to July 1st of your intent to plan the long Halloween for this year. Make it so... Kurt Greenfield. No, he's Kurt Greenfield at the bottom. I'm confused. He has two names. <laughs> Co-host of Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Find us on Tumblr.com. Serial Surface Invaders. Note the plural. Um, well, it was very kind of you to uh, remind us that we'd said that, because I, I don't remember us saying that. Mm. I'm not saying we didn't. It's entirely possible that we did. However, a quick perusal of the Big Boys book of interesting plans <laughs> not only reveals that we've only planned the next five shows, taking us up to uh, uh, an episode released on the 6th of the 8th, 15. Obviously, that's our version of saying the date in America. That would be 8 6 uh, Next week's issue is already recorded and in the can yeah. next week's issue next week's episode so that would put us at the 23rd of July release date before we could even implement that plan mm-hmm. of covering one issue per show one issue of the long Halloween and by my reckoning from the 23rd of July we have either 10 or 8 episodes left depending on when you finalise when you're actually leaving. Yeah. So that's not enough time to cover the long Halloween on, a, on an issue-by-issue basis. However, we will cover the long Halloween for one of our reunion movies. All right. Probably, so we've already, we, we take his comics as Risen from the Grave, we'll be the first one. Yeah. And if Captain America White is out, that's what we'll be covering, but I don't think it will be by Christmas, will Probably it? Probably not. I wouldn't have thought. Maybe, so, maybe Christmas in two years' time. So maybe the long Halloween. Long Halloween has Christmas in it, doesn't it? Yeah. So we could totally do a Christmas couple of episodes when you come home for Christmas. Halloween on Christmas? The long Halloween. Hmm? It's like Halloween at Christmas, and in the end we'll wish this never ends. We'll wish this never ends. Don't waste your time on me, <laughs> you're all ready. <laughs> and I like that you did the wine as well. You the, got to. The, the nasal wine of Tom DeLonge. Did you know there's a linguistic uh, professor who is analysing Tom DeLonge's accent? Why would he do that? To kill time. Oh, right, okay, so you got nothing else to do. To be hip and down with the kids. All right, fair enough. So, all right, we will do that. We will do the Long Halloween as one of the reunion specials. Mm. We'll have to think of a good name for it at some point. But, you know... We'll, Bride we'll, of Hey Kids Comics. Bride of Hey Kids Comics. <laughs> the Revenge of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids yeah. Comics is ridden from the grave. grave. Carry on, Hey Kids Comics. Mm. That was a good one. Hey Kids Comics Reanimator. <laughs> yeah, Hey Kids Comics Fury Road. Yeah. Comic, hey Kids Comic Strikes Back's a good one. Yeah. I like that one on its own. Hey Kids Comics The Search for Michael. <laughs> that would be brilliant. So yeah, we'll we'll pencil Long Halloween in as a reunion special, along with Captain America White. Okay. So we've got two reunion specials mm-hmm. that are, uh, are, are uh, lined up. Should we ever... So we may, you may come back for your holiday and go, I can't be bothered there. <laughs> I've enjoyed not doing it. Yeah, so yeah. so you never. Know. It's the only problem with stopping. You don't want to go back to it. Well, it's not what I'm thinking. I don't want to stop, but at the same time, 
it is starting to become quite the struggle to maintain this weekly schedule. Yeah. And has been for, for some considerable time. I have said, Palace of Glittering Light will never be weekly. <laughs> ever. Mm. Unless it's by accident. That may happen inadvertently, but no, I'm, I'm never doing a regularly scheduled show again. Ever. That's just not happening. Uh, we'll squeeze another one in because my phone has let me open. Uh, Michael Versity, which is the title of an email from Chris Franklin this week. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Michael. Whenever Michael takes the rain, he's not Michael, he's Chris. Why am I calling him Michael? I don't know. Is this the thing that you have to be called Michael to listen or join in with the show? Yeah, fine. So, so I've rechristened him Michael Franklin. <laughs> Cindy will be made up, as I'm as, sure. As far as names go, it's not a bad one. It's not a bad name, no. I wonder if he spells it the same way you do. Probably not. Okay. Anyway, Chris continues, or Michael continues. <laughs> Whenever Michael takes the reins, I feel like I've been on a head trip afterwards. And that's not a bad thing. I do think sometimes I enjoy much of Morrison's Morrisonness as filtered through Michael than actually reading the books. But this episode was enjoyable and thought-provoking. I only picked up the Captain Marvel Thunderbolt one-shot from this event, so I had little frame of reference for just what was going on. Yet I found myself able to follow along just fine. Well done. I'm not sure if it's the exact same character, but DC had a Marvel villain analogue group called the Extremists. They had a Doctor Doom-like leader named Lord Havoc, and they also had ringers for Doctor Octopus, Magneto, and Sabretooth, as I recall. They first appeared in the late 1980s Justice League Europe comic. Looking forward to part two, Chris. Well, you're very, very welcome, Chris. Uh, we're, we're glad that you enjoy Michael's ramblings <laughs> on Grant Morrison's ramblings. Mm. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It does. Alright, I'm bored of reading emails on my phone. If I'd known that this is going, was going to happen, I would have printed them out earlier and read them properly. So we will uh, we'll knock emailing on the head there and we'll get back to it next week when hopefully we'll be able to read them properly. Hopefully. Do you remember back in the day we did when actually did used to off. print emails yeah. after we? so that we could actually read them as if they were proper correspondence, like a ye oldie radio show. Yeah. Which, let's be honest, I always wanted to make. Did you? Yeah, I always want. I'd love to do radio. Did you ever record your own? Or pretend to? Yeah, kind of, but I never actually recorded them. <laughs> right, Because okay. I made the mistake of listening once and hearing my voice. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was an error yeah. on my part. Now I have no choice, because I have to edit this show. So. Everyone I do shows with the moans that I don't listen to. The Sean Engel started as well. He's oh, joining the Steve Lacey Watt bandwagon right, okay. of complaining that I don't listen to Listen to the Prophets. <laughs> Sorry, dude! I do apologise. Anyway, we'll be back in a moment with uh, some talk of comics. Mm-hmm. Very good comics they will be too. Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. Writer Robert Kaniger and artist Carmine Infantino created Black Canary in 1947. She debuted as a masked femme fatale that kind of skirted the law, but pretty quickly she evolved into a civic-minded crime fighter. She has mastered multiple martial arts disciplines and unarmed combat forms. Her canary cry, when properly focused, is powerful powerful enough to punch a hole through a wall. Black Canary has, in one form or another, been part of multiple incarnations of the Justice League, the Justice Society, and Birds of Prey. I freaking fell in love with Black Canary, and I'm proud to podcast about her adventures in comics and television. Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. What can be said about the crisis on Infinite Earths that hasn't been said before? Not much. Night then. <laughs> I make that joke every week, don't you I? You do. You laugh every week, though. Is that just you being polite? It, a little bit. All right, that's fair enough. 
One of those talked about miniseries in the history of comics, it can provoke furious debates, even now, 30 years after its initial publication. In a nutshell, DC Comics, spearheaded by creators Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, decided that the many alternate Earths that contributed to the DC multiverse were too confusing for newer readers, and as such, a story was pitched that brought it all to an end with a bang and reinvigorated the DC Comics line in a more streamlined manner. There's much more to it than that, but for the details, I suggest you check out the Tales of the Justice Society of America podcast, where they are looking at crisis in great detail. For our purposes, though, Michael and I decided that it would be fun to go back and look at the immediate aftermath of the original reboot. After the crisis concluded, there would no longer be an Earth-1 or an Earth-2 and other such offshoots. There would be one cohesive DC universe. In many ways, this was the end of DC Comics and the start of a DC that desperately chased what Marvel Comics were, a cohesive, shared Earth with one definitive history. DC had already started publishing a comic that was essentially a Marvel book, The New Teen Titans, and that this had rapidly become the best-selling title was not lost on them. With that in mind, the idea had some merit. The problem was the execution, and in the titles we'll be looking at over the next two shows, we'll look at the different approaches taken by DC in making a new universe out of the ashes of the old. For this episode, we'll be looking at the holy trinity of DC characters, two of which received a Ground Zero relaunch that was the point of the crisis, one of which received a stealth reboot that was riddled with problems. Up first, a character we have covered before in regards to this post-crisis new beginning, Superman. Of all the characters in the DC pantheon, Superman is arguably the biggest and most recognisable. When it was decided that he was suffering a slump, it was with huge fanfare and publicity that it was announced that he would be the first character to receive this treatment, and it signifies DC's intent. If Superman, with all his grand mythology, could be restarted, it signified that all bets were off. DC picked a top flight creator of the day, John Byrne, to begin Superman over, and this too was a calculated move to generate publicity. The past was abandoned, with said top creator announcing in interviews that this was because too many barnacles had accumulated upon the character over the years, and his job, as he saw it, was to clean off the hole, update some elements, apply a touch of paint, and give Superman the prominence he deserved in the 1980s. He received a six-issue miniseries, The Man of Steel, which we have covered before, and a new number one, the eponymously titled Superman, both of which were a statement of intent. However, if one thing contributed to the feeling that DC were not perhaps entirely committed, it was that the longest-running comic, Action Comics, continued its original numbering, with John Byrne's first issue being issue 584. It's a lesson that the New 52 would learn much later. To be fair to DC, Superman was in a slump at this time. Whilst it was possible to find good Superman stories, there was a distinct feeling that longtime editor Julius Schwartz was emptying out the inventory drawer and coasting along to retirement. As such, this issue of action was quite the slap in the face, especially if readers, and there must have been a few, were not aware of this initiative and were suddenly greeted with a very different Superman. Action Comics issue 584 was covered dated January 1987 and had a cover by Byrne. The Man of Steel is out for blood, runs the cover copy, as a grinning and maniacal Superman grabs member of the new Teen Titans, Donna Troy, by the throat, having already ripped off the arm of Cyborg. The changeling lies on the floor already out cold. Only this man can stop him, runs the piece of copy at the bottom, an arrow pointing to a frail-looking man in a wheelchair. It's a typical burn composition of this time period, and exciting to look at. 
I did find it interesting that of the three covers that DC had on the relaunch of the main books, only Adventures had a nice painted iconic shot of Superman. This has him beating the shit out of the Teen Titans, and Superman had him being beaten the shit out of by the Terminator. Nice logo. Nice new Action Comics <laughs> logo. What do you think of that? Uh, I like it. Do you like that cover? But it doesn't scream number one. It does not scream number one. It's interesting in that it's John Byrne drawing Superman and the new Teen Titans. It's well laid out. I'm a fan of white backgrounds. I know that Stephen Lacey isn't because we've talked about it on Fantastic Cast. But I think in that particular instance the white background offsets the blue Action Comics logo and the colours of the costumes very nicely. I think it's, it's a, a nice cover. Because you're instantly intrigued as to why Superman is smiling and ripping bits off Cyborg and strangling Wonder Girl. So I think I called Wonder Woman earlier on, but if I did, I, I apologise for that. So yeah, it is, it's a nice cover. I like it a lot. Squatter was written and drawn by John Byrne and Dick Giordano. Possibly. Superman is on the rampage, smashing up buildings with reckless abandon. As debris rains down, Cyborg from the New Titans leaps into action, blasting it into dust with his white sound blaster before checking up on Superman. Superman is drunk on his power, however, and ignores Cyborg until Cyborg attracts his attention. Superman responds to this by kicking the transistors out of Cyborg, tearing off his bionic arm and leg and flinging him to the floor 30 stories below. Cyborg manages to survive the fall and calls Titan's Tower, who dispatch the only two members there, Changeling and Wonder Girl. Changeling's ability to adopt the form of any animal provides no more than a momentary distraction for the Man of Steel, but Wonder Girl, being an Amazon, is slightly more of a match. Still, even she's not really an issue, and as Superman rather distastefully explains what he's about to do to her, Cyborg hits him with a rugby tackle. Before Superman can rip Cyborg into spur parts, another Teen Titan, Jericho, arrives, having heard about this battle on the expositional news network, TM Michael Bailey. He uses his mutant power, TM Fox Movies, to take over Superman's body and end this destructive conflict. With Jericho in control, Superman cannot move, although he can still rage. And as the Titans ponder their predicament, a disabled man claims that this isn't Superman at all. He is. Superman explains that this is the body of David Gunderson, and he tricks Superman to swapping minds thanks to a transference device he cooked up over breakfast. See, Gunderson is a rather bitter man, and now in control of Superman's power, he goes on a rampage. Superman managed to escape, and here we are. The Titans take Superman back to Gunderson's, where this magnificent technological marvel can be reversed by simply pressing a button labelled Reverse. Superman then gives Gunderson a tedious lecture about what makes a man. In Paris, France, Lex Luthor realises that Clark Kent gets all the best stories about Superman and starts to scheme. Not a lot to that one, was there? No. As you can tell by the uh, the synopsis there. Superman kicking the crap out of the buildings on page two is uh, a really brilliant splash page. The opening of this issue also gives Byrne a chance to draw a number of bystanders, which obviously also gives him the opportunity to draw a number of different faces. A thing that bugs me, probably didn't bug you in anywhere, right. I wouldn't have thought, is that people constantly harp on about the fact that Byrne can only draw two faces. Yet this issue clearly puts that to lie. Mm. Superman doesn't look like Cyborg, who doesn't look like any of those people in panel three of page three, who doesn't look like any of the people on panel one of page one. All, they've all got clearly distinctive faces, haven't they? Yeah. It's quite obvious he's drawing different people. Now, you can argue, I think, that Byrne only has a limited repertoire of heroic faces. Mm. 
But there's only so many ways one can draw squirt-yard hunk and attractive woman. So yeah. his Lois Lane may look a bit like his Sue Richards, may look a bit like his Jean Grey, his Bruce Wayne may look a bit like his Clark Kent, but Jim Aparo drew Clark Kent to look exactly the same as Superman. Right. And nobody complained about that, as far as I remember. So that is one of those internet myths I wish would just go away. Because it's demonstrably not true. Mm. That certainly by this point in his career that he's only got two faces. I don't agree with it at all. Opinion? I don't really have one. Move it on, then. Yeah, it doesn't look like just two faces. No, it, I think it's demonstrably not true from this issue. But as an artist, how many faces can you draw in general? George Perez can draw quite a few. He can? Can't In he? the same panel? In the same panel. But he's, he's quite impressive, though, isn't he? Our first post-crisis problem crops up in this issue. These Teen Titans don't seem significantly different to the pre-crisis group, and even in their own book, there was little to differentiate post and pre Crisis Teen Titans. This couldn't possibly be because Marv Wolfman wrote both right. and didn't want to just discard his own work, could it? Mm. You, do you think that's that's coincidental? Couldn't be. Couldn't be. Couldn't be a coincidence. It, it probably was a coincidence. You think? Yeah. Uh, I did feel that the the Teen Titans being in this was only because Byrne was doing both. No, he wasn't. Oh, doing he teen wasn't Titans. doing Teen Titans, was it? No. It, it did feel like they were kind of forced in there a bit to me. Um, well, he says in the text page. At the back of this issue, you know, when first issues had text pages. Oh, yeah. Talking about the uh, the issue and stuff. He does say that his, uh, his original idea was he wanted Green Lantern, but he wanted Hal Jordan's Green Lantern, and he was told he was off limits. Right. And then he was told that uh, there was another character that he wanted as well, the Green Lantern Corps, and they were off limits. And then he wanted the Spectre. Right. But he was off limits, so finally they settled on the Teen Titans. Okay. So you do wonder... How would this issue have panned out if it had been Green Lantern? Mm. How would Green Lantern have, have overtook him like Jericho does? Yeah. So would it have had the same plot even if it had been a team up with Green Lantern and, and the Spectre? Mm. Both of which Byrne would have him meet later in the run. Yeah. So that embargo must have been lifted at, at some point. But, um, yeah. Uh, do you know what's really funny about this issue? What? When Superman is under Gunderson's control, read his dialogue as if he's Stewie from Family Guy. You will rule the day. <laughs> The ants! The pitiful, worthless creatures! So, and he totally works. It did. Read his dialogue as Stewie Griffin. And it makes it funnier. It makes the yeah. issue much funnier. Well, once Cyborg points out that he's not talking like Superman, it just reads funnily. Yeah. Well, it's it, it, it's it's one of those things Burns done a pretty good job, though, of actually giving him a very definitive speech pattern. Yeah. He's given him a very cliched, over-the-top melodramatic speech pattern yeah but like I said read it as Stewie Griffin it, it totally works they struggle through their meaningless lives and never dream of power it's great mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant I wonder if that would make um, Clark Brian or Cyborg well Clark's not really in this issue is he so Cyborg can be Brian yeah Changeling can be Peter alright <laughs> Changeling answers the phone at Titan's Tower by impersonating Agnes DePesto from Moonlighting. A gag so dated nowadays uh, that I doubt many people would even get it. I didn't. Did you not? No. And then you've seen Moonlighting. I have. Largely just because of me. But yeah, he's Blue Moon Detective Agency. Mm. And she used to answer the, the phone in rap, so... Very dated pop culture gag. That doesn't make much in the way of sense. Anyway. Uh, Wonder Girl's dialogue is god-awful. Mm throughout the entire issue. Whilst I get Byrne portraying Wonder Girl as a strong character, having her refer to herself as a liberated lady 
would have been anachronistic at the time mm. and now just feels really patronising. Yeah. Do you know that thing? I may be called a girl, but I'm a woman. Well, I don't mind that too much because that just they play with that in the new Supergirl pilot. Yeah. Why is she called Supergirl instead of Superwoman? Well, Supergirl sounds better. Mm. Is the real answer. But Wonder Girl's trademark. I don't. Does she even have this name anyway? Is there a Donna Troy anymore? Yeah. I don't know if there is in the new Fifty Two. Is there? Probably I know there much. wasn't for a while. I think there might be. I don't, I don't know. I don't read enough of it to know. So who can say? Um, what is it about certain writers? No names mentioned. Mark Miller. That the first place they go when depicting the subjugation of a female character is to threaten to rape them. Yeah. I expected a little bit better from John Byrne, to be yeah. honest with you. But, uh, you know, it is what it is, I suppose. Uh, page 19, Superman is as naive as hell when he himself points out Gunderson's reasons for seeing him a pollution-free source of energy. Mm. Has no need of Superman's involvement. He actually says that. What would you need Superman for? Pretty sure as a penny. But, you know, Superman's apparently got nothing else to do with his time. Clark doesn't have to be in the office, you know, working. Mm -hmm. You know, doing what he's getting paid for. And he decides to just drop by any and all scientists that phone him and ask him to. Yeah. And off he goes. Help in the community. Yeah, alright, fair enough. Not only that, but a machine as complex as a mind transference device works via a simple on and off switch. (laughs) <laughs> well, when you're handicapped like he is. Painly, patently ridiculous, though, eh? Yeah. I mean, you know. But helpful in, in situations like this? Helpful, yes. Helpful, helpful in situations such as bad plotting. <laughs> is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. Okay, fair enough. And Superman's lecture on page 21 is just dreadful. Yeah. In the right hands, Superman's speeches are inspirational. Even when they're corny, yeah. they're still inspirational. And I'm not somebody who really has a problem with Superman being carny on occasions. Nothing wrong with that. I don't say anything wrong with that. But this was just eye-rollingly bad. Yeah. It's like there is so much dialogue in that panel. He's kind of like peeping (laughs) around the speech balloons as if to say, Ah, it's me! It's just a bit isn't it? Uh, Yeah. This is not Burns' best written work Mm. by any stretch of the imagination. What uh, What did you think of it? I thought... It was enjoyable, but there were so many bits that were a bit too heavy. Yeah. What a brave lad. I'll help even if it kills me. It's very melodramatic. It, yeah. Isn't it? And not in a particularly good way. Uh, John Byrne, he was one of my favourite creators as a younger reader. And regardless of his tactless ways mm. nowadays, which is probably <laughs> all we're going to say on the matter, uh, I still think a lot of his work is above average. And often great. He does great comics, irrespective of what he's like as a person or some of the bile that comes out of his mouth. Even if it's just photo montage. Yeah, he's, he does pretty good comics. However, one of the runs that I really don't think has held up is his work on Superman. Right. Not all of it, to be sure, but what became apparent to me rereading his run on Superman alongside From Crisis to Crisis a Superman podcast, was that it was very slight in an awful lot of cases hmm. with some very lacklustre plots that he just made good by by his artwork. Yeah. Essentially, his artwork made it look good. This is typical of that. The plot here is nothing we've not seen before. Byrne adds nothing new. There is nothing new to the mind transference plot in this issue, is there? Hmm. It's not like that episode of Buffy where they did it where the whole point of it was for Faith to learn what it meant to be heroic. 
yeah. what it meant to be selfless. There was a point to that story. There's no point to this. Other than Superman fighting other than, yeah, other than heroes. Have Superman trash a few buildings and fight some heroes. That yeah. is the, the only reason for this to, to exist. There are moments that are simply glossed over, such as the fact that Clark can pick a lock. What? Yeah. Where did that come from? Fighting crime, he's learned some shady things. Has he really? When has he had to learn to pick a lock? Given that he's Superman, and every time he may have been locked somewhere as Clark Kent, he's probably just gone <laughs> and broke the lock. When when he was researching for the novel he wrote. Oh right, okay, fair enough. Right, I'll go. We're watching too much Magnum PI. <laughs> yeah, he's learned how to pick a lock, which is wacky because Magnum always did it wrong. <laughs> he always only ever had one thing where you're supposed you supposed to have two, right? Want to to lift pick it a lock. Yeah. So he kind of learned it from Magnum. Yeah. So that's, that, that was just I thought that was a bit weak. The final scene as well, where Superman lectures Gunderson is just laughably bad. Mm. Not just because of the simplistic dialogue, but its positioning, yeah. as we mentioned, and the pacing of, of the comic is, uh, is is off. I mean, on the text page that I've just mentioned, Byrne clearly states that this is action comics, and it will be less cerebral than the other Superman comics. Not that his other Superman comics could be labelled, you know, work for heavy thinkers, <laughs> but at the same time, this is just action all the way. But... I suppose this fulfills that criteria. Mm. I suppose it fulfills the action criteria. But these criticisms became a running complaint on From Crisis to Crisis and not just on action. That said, I did love it as a 14-year-old. And not everything has to hold up over the course of a lifetime, does it? Mm. It was, like you say, it was enjoyable enough fluff. Yeah. If you can read it of a mind that this dial- some of this dialogue's dreadful. Yeah, the bad bits kind of were a bit... The bad bits drag it down, bit. yeah. An awful lot. And it's yeah, it's just the whole mind transference thing just didn't work as a plot point for me. It was, yeah, it was a bit woolly, bit bit weak. Well, never mind. Burns' run on Superman, however, was arguably what the character needed at that time. But reading it now, it seems more dated than the material it was replacing. The foundations Burn laid would be built upon by other creators to greater effect, and the post-crisis era would go on to be a memorable and entertaining one for Superman. As a first issue, this wasn't great, but it's not bad either. But there's nothing here to really give you an idea of what Byrne was going for. For that, one would have to check out Man of Steel or the other two Superman titles. And for further information on this era, check out From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which I've uh, name-dropped quite a lot in this one, because they're covering all of that. So it's, it's well worth going checking it out. Unlike Superman, the Batman was a different kettle of fish. The Batman didn't receive a Ground Zero reboot. He received a mini-series that retold his origins, sure, but this was part of the regular Batman series rather than a publicity-generating separate series. And even then, Batman Year One, as it came to be known, only told Batman's first year, whereas Superman had a new origin and a completely new backstory. It was instead decided that Batman would be allowed to pick and choose his continuity. So a lot of the 1950s adventures with different costumes and off-world adventures were consigned to the waste bin of time. But a lot of the 1970s work by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams would still be part of continuity. As with Wolfman earlier, O'Neill being editor of the Bat books at this time was, I'm sure, purely a coincidence. (laughs) The upshot of this, though, was that Batman's history became more confusing post-crisis than pre There was even a period where, despite having still been Batman's first crime-fighting partner, Robin, Dick Grayson had no in-continuity stories with him as Batman's full-time partner. Events of years ago were considered canon, but events of but a few months ago were no longer viable. Case in point, Jason Todd. 
Jason Todd was the second Robin Who, as created by Jerry Conway, was a carbon copy of Dick Grayson. He was only a few years old as the crisis happened, but it was quickly decided that the gritty and grimy 80s needed a different kind of Robin, largely, I suspect, due to the fact that the lingered image of the character was actor Burt Ward, swapping bad puns with big-name guest stars on the 60s TV show. Batman issue 408 was covered dated June 1987. This cover by Chris Warner and Mike DiCarlo has become a defining image of this post-crisis Jason Todd. Batman looms menacingly, as opposed to looming pleasantly, over a young kid who is stealing the wheels off the Batmobile. It's an okay cover, but whilst Batman looks fine, Jason looks squat and unconvincing as a child. The comic now has the title Batman The New Adventures. What did you think? It's good. Do you like it? Yeah. I I like the blacks on it. All right, yeah. I I think the the positioning looks off. Batman looks closer than he should be, given Jason's eye line. Yes, he looks bigger. Yeah, he looks bigger than he should be, given the size of the car. Yeah, it's like he wouldn't fit in that car. True. So it it doesn't work for me on a compositional level or an artistic level. Jason doesn't look like a child. He looks like a tiny person with a massive head. (laughs) So it's it doesn't work for me at all. And how did Jason lift the car up yeah, to put like, that breeze block underneath there it? There isn't a crank or whatever. No. So, it didn't, no. It just does not work for me on any level. The drawing of Batman, in and of itself, the top half of the issue, is fine. Despite his leg being tiny compared to his head. Yes, but it doesn't work with the rest of the cover. Compositionally, it's, it's off somehow. Did Robin Die Tonight was written by Max Allen Collins with art by the aforementioned Warner and DeCarlo. On a dark and stormy Gotham night, the Batman closes in on the Joker, his theft of the hopeless diamonds or smile of death jewels still underway. As he approaches the clown prince, Robin comes up from behind, but our harlequin of hate spins round and shoots the teen wonder through the shoulder. The Batman, enraged, leaps after the tiny titan, latching his bat rope around Robin's legs. Robin, wounded but not out, tells Batman to go after the Joker, which the Batman does, taking him down. But in the interim, Robin has lost his grip and fallen to a ledge below. Newscopters have the footage and the news at 11 leads off with the story. Did Robin die tonight? Of course he didn't. And after Alfred has patched up the wounds, Bruce decides to let Robin stay dead. Dick reluctantly agrees, preferring to pursue his own identity. The press have a field day accusing Batman of child endangerment, and although Commissioner Gordon approves of Batman leaving the kid on the sidelines, he can't understand why Batman doesn't inform the press. Batman couldn't care less what the press are saying, especially not this Vicky Vale character. That's mainly because Bruce Wayne is dating Vicky, although the next day Bruce refuses to become a part of her Committee for Concerned Citizens Against Batman. Still, when he witnesses a team of teen pickpockets steal a wallet, he intervenes, but to protect his secret, he takes a minor beating. He and Vicky take their leave after returning the wallet, and Bruce somehow managed to get a hold of, with Vicky heading to Ma Gunn's school for boys. Gunn's school is located on Crime Alley, and wouldn't you know it, tonight is the anniversary of the Wayne's death. And what does Batman do every year on that date? He prowls Crime Alley. He meets Gunn and congratulates her on the work she is doing, but Crime Alley is otherwise quiet this night. Still, Batman can't help but giggle when he returns to the Batmobile to see it shorn of its tyres. The culprit returns to the scene of the crime, gives Batman a taste of his tyre iron and flees. The Batman follows him, hoping to locate his tyres, but also finds an orphan fending for himself. He takes the kid, named Jason Todd, to Ma Gunn's school, where, after Batman leaves, her students, under Gunn's orders, prepare to stick Jason like a pig. 
bit of a minor cliffhanger ending that, wouldn't it? Mm. Really, in many ways. Uh, I actually think the opening's the best part of this issue. Yeah, the Batman, Robin, Joker stuff. Setting it at night and having it be raining. Bit of a heavy cliche, <laughs> wouldn't it? But, you know, it's a tried and true technique for a reason, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it works. It's the start of the Joker being a much more murderous villain than he was pre-crisis, and we actually see him shoot Robin through the shoulder on panel, and pondering just shooting Batman in the face mm. and in the back. Yeah, which is you know a bit more ruthless Joker than although he's, he's killed people before this, but not quite as. I don't think we've ever seen somebody take a sh- bullet through the shoulder. Like, well, well we don't know you. I'm, oh yeah, we do see it on panel, don't we? Yeah, we do actually see it on he panel. He just goes right through them. Yeah. Well, it always does in films and comics, doesn't it? Oh, the bullet went right through. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that great big hole in your shoulder won't make it. You'll be back to normal in days. We just put a, put a plaster on it. You'll be fine. <laughs> It'll bullets, heal itself. The bullets never bounce around the body. No, never, never. It just goes right through. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. And it's never mentioned again <laughs> that Dick Grayson got shot through the, sh- through the shoulder. Never mentioned. Uh, the Joker brags about having pulled off the theft of the smile of death jewels alone with no henchmen. Who therefore is flying the Jocopter? It's remote controlled. Is it? I'm guessing. Oh, does he not actually say that? I thought you'd spotted something I'd not spotted. No, I'm just Oh no. Alright. A remote controlled helicopter. Hmm. Okay. It's comics. Yeah, they uh, do exist. Yeah, fair enough. Alright. Just I'll a bit smaller. A bit smaller than that, yeah. Uh it needs pointing out here. That although Bruce essentially fires Dick Grayson, the parting is still amicable, isn't it? Yeah. There was no falling out. I thought this was a bit rushed, to be honest, just to get Dick out of the way. Yeah, you're right, it does feel a bit... Yeah, we need to move him off the stage. We have months going by in one panel. Yeah. So, well, this was was comics battle. Would you prefer this took six issues? To just tell this one story, the introduction of Jason Todd? Maybe just don't have Dick Grayson in it. What, and leave how we split up for a later date? Like in Teen Titans. Yeah, because this is, this is instantly contradicting that Teen Titans story, isn't it? Yeah. It only came out a couple of months ago by, by these... No, it was a couple of years. Was it 84, that story, and this is 87 now? Uh, Still relatively recent, though, hmm. isn't it, by, uh, by publishing standards. Apparently Vicky Vale likes to make phone calls while she's lounging on her bed in a, a nice little teddy negligee. <laughs> It's almost a shot-for-shot panel remake of what Jim Lee would do in All-Star Batman and Robin. Right. That's how we first meet Vicky Vale in that, isn't it? Just lounging around okay. in her underwear. I don't remember. Do you not? Well, we'll see when we cover it soon. <laughs> when we cover our absolute Batman and Robin. All-Star. It's not... Yeah, All-Star. Sorry, not absolute. It's not as gratuitous as Jim Lee's. But it's still a bit sexist. Yeah. This is what women do. We just lounge around in our underwear all day. <laughs> When we're, when we're not at work. If you looked like Vicky Vale, would you not lie around in just a towel, though? If I looked like Vicky Vale, I'd probably spend all the time playing with myself. <laughs> to be honest with you. Probably in a mirror. Okay. Probably film it. <laughs> probably put it on Snapchat or Instagram. On Snapchat? Not on Snapchat. Just right. on Instagram. Just on Instagram? Yeah, maybe on Instagram. So you would rather have more people seeing it than just specific people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to make my name for, like, and then I become a Cardassian brand. Right. And then I make a, a load of money for being a vacuous waste of skin. Okay. And then ruin her career when she ultimately presses the reverse button. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, yeah. No, Vicky Vale at least has a career. Yeah. Vicky asks Bruce to support her cause whilst backing Margun's home. Mm. Guess where this is going? 
She doesn't support the Batman. But she supports... She supports Margun. I don't think a name like that, and she's a good guy. Oh, it gets worse. Her first name's Faye. Fagan. Fagan. Right. Got to pick a pocket or two. Uh, well, that's, that's perfect. I'm like... It, no, it isn't. <laughs> it really is the opposite. All right. Of that. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, seeing Bruce stop the mugging's good. That's a nice little scene. I mean, the, the toughs are just campy as hell by today's standards. Yes. Yeah. Aren't they? With the, the cute little trilbies on. <laughs> cool, blimey, Gavner. They're just hipsters now. Yeah, hipster trilby were. Yeah. And baseball cap man. That's what we're going to call them. All right. They're the name <laughs> of the villains. Be were hipster trilby were and uh, baseball cap were in man. He doesn't tend to get involved with stuff like this as a rule, does he, Bruce Wayne? No. So it was nice to see, and it was nice to see that he got the guy's wallet back. Yeah. Somehow. He did a mask of the phantasm. Yes, he did he got get his ass handed to him. He got his ass handed to him. So, I mean, talk, when he's, now that he's established as Batman, yeah. he doesn't normally get involved in stuff like that. So it was nice to see him. And I do like him just, you know, hanging back and going, I'm going to have to take a punch in now, aren't I? Yeah. Otherwise it's going to give away who I am. So that was quite good as well. That was a good scene. Max Allen Collins' descriptions of Crime Alley followed the earlier Denny and Neil and Mike Barr stories. There is no hope in Crime Alley and the player on the other side, almost word for word. Implying... But they're still in continuity right at this point I think the player on the other side will ultimately get retconned mm. but I don't think there is no hope in Crime Alley ever did right in fact I actually think that became part of post-crisis canon because mm. it is an episode of the animated series as well isn't it yeah there is no hope in Crime Alley page 16 panel 5 is gloriously camp as is Faye Gunn's Australian accent but I'm afraid you're in for an uneventful night Cobba you're telling me, love. That nice. ain't no knife. That's no knife. And the, the the bit that I'm referring to is Batman walking past all the pimps and hookers. Yeah. Just casually strolling down the street. Good evening, citizen. I, I did like how she pointed out that the criminals have started learning that it's an anniversary thing, so they don't commit crimes. Because so, they know Batman's going to be around. Yeah. Surely it's only a short step, though, from going, well, why does he come on this night every year for a detective as good as, say, oh, Jim Gordon? Yeah. <laughs> There is that. Oh dear! And I did like him breaking out into laughter when the Batmobile had his uh, his, his wheels stuck. That was funny. That like knowing that where, where that panels come from because that's become a meme now. What Batman laughing? Yeah, has it? Yeah. All oh, right. What's it a meme for? When someone's being stupid. Oh, so you just laugh right. at them. okay. So it's not one of those memes that's posted by someone to make their own point that you suddenly see and go, oh, you are correct. I will change my opinion forthwith. Is there any such meme? Um, uh, no. All right, so that panel's become something. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Nothing major. Um, it's heavily implied that Jason watched his mother die. Right. When you read this, what did you think about him talking about what happened to his mum? I guess I didn't get that he saw his mum die. I, I got the impression, the subtext here was he watched her pass away. Right. From what he says... I, that's the impression I got. Obviously, that cannot be the case given what happens in death in the family. Yeah. Where he finds his mum and goes and finds her and then the Joker beats him to death with a crowbar. Because mm. comics. <laughs> Not just for kids. Jason's also thoroughly unlikable from the get-go. Yeah, and he? will be. And I get that they didn't want to make him a Dick Grayson clone, but having him be the complete opposite, it was an odd choice. Yeah. They try and, and milk some pathos out of his story of being an orphan and his parents being dead and, and all of that stuff, but Batman the Animated Series did it much better, but ironically they did it with Tim Drake. Yeah. This feels like too much the other way. Yeah. 
it's it's not very great, yeah, is it? And I liked how my gun is now a bad guy, so she's smoking. Of course, yeah, it's the way this works. Um, a very very mixed bag. Yeah, which I think uh, you can tell, lovely listener. Whilst it opens well enough with a new reason for Robin to call it quits with Batman, it undermines a great issue of Teen Titans in doing so. And I just thought this tonally was really odd. It's trying very hard to be gritty and street. Yeah. And it's got themes of child endangerment and orphans and kids living on the streets and Robin being shot. But the flip side of that is there's some incredibly camp elements to this story. I can just about live with Batman walking down Crime Alley Mm. in the middle of the road saying hello to the citizens. But the name Joe Copter was a throwback to the 60s. And naming the villain Faye Gunn, (laughs) who of course runs an orphanage, and Batman not putting two and two together was just silly. And not good silly. Yeah. Not good daft. We like a bit of good daft. Yeah. Don't we? That was just daft. That was straight out of the Adam West TV show. Faye Gunn. (laughs) And she runs an orphanage where she gets kids to do crime. And you're like, Batman... Hello, world's greatest detective! If she gets kids to do crime, why is she making them stab the new blood? Yeah, that, that, that's a cliffhanger ending, that didn't make sense. I mean, maybe that's explained in the next issue, which I honestly don't remember. Because I think this is an incredibly weak yeah. period in Batman history. And between Batman Year One finishing and Denny O'Neill getting all these ducks in a row in return in regards to the creative teams, Max Allen Collins' stuff is very weak. And a very weak beginning to the post crisis Superman. It's not quite there yet in terms of its realistic Batman for the post-crisis era, is it? No. It's not quite got to that level. The art's fine, not as good as Mazzuella, who drew Year One, but it's okay. It tells the story unremarkably, but competently. Overall, though, this is a misfire as the first proper post-crisis issue. Year One was better and pointed the way, but somewhere the creative team on this book went the wrong direction. Yeah. And it just uh, it doesn't work as, as well as as one would hope. Of course, this was also later retconned itself, with the breakup of the partnership between Batman and Robin being a source of a lot of alteration and amendments over the next decade or so. It kind of proved that, at least as far as Batman was concerned, having a definitive plan for the post-crisis era would have been far preferable to this mishmash that they chose. Oddly, this would not learn this lesson <laughs> when it came to the New 52. What did you think of it? Not the New 52. Um... I don't know. I wanted to enjoy it, as with all of them, but it was a bit too not right, not quite there. Tonally, it's just, it, it doesn't marry the two elements together, does it? Yeah, and then trying to get Dick out of the way was a bit not handled all that well. No, he's just like, right, let's get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I agree with it. It's, it's not a great first issue. Even though it's not a first issue, but you know what I mean. Uh, as with Superman, Wonder Woman was also given the complete reboot treatment, albeit for different reasons. Whilst it was decided that there was nothing actually wrong with Superman's origins, only the accumulated baggage of nearly 50 years of publication, Wonder Woman had been faffed and fiddled with so much over the years, her backstory was now considered by DC to be a muddled and convoluted mess. The company invited pitches from a number of creators, none of which really floated their boats. The only one that came close was by a writer named Greg Potter, which at least kept many of the elements that made a Wonder Woman story. Elements such as Paradise Island, Steve Trevor, and the contest that led Wonder Woman to the man's world. 
However, there were still a number of troubling elements to Potter's pitch that was uncomfortable to the DC brass, particularly the female employees. The artist for the project hadn't found favour either. Enter yet another of comics' biggest names at that time, George Perez. Perez had had a spectacular career at both Marvel and DC in the 70s and 80s, the crowning jewel of which was his run on the New Teen Titans, DC's biggest selling and most critically successful comic book of the early 80s. Perez had an interest in the mythology of the Greek gods, and combined with the marvellous work Walt Simonson had recently completed on Thor, he took to expanding some of those ideas he'd just explored in Titans, and volunteered to take the assignment, thinking he'd do a six-issue arc, scratch his mythology itch, and move on. Instead, Perez stayed for five years, creating a run that many people consider to be definitive. Wonder Woman issue number one, cover dated February 1987, has the best cover of the week. A simply gorgeous wraparound cover by Perez that would work as a movie poster, touching upon many of the iconic images of the character. The bracelets, the lasso, Paradise Island, the Amazons... A little bit of bondage. Yeah. Never a bad thing. And, and, and Wonder Woman comic without Very it. much part of Wonder Woman mythology. Yeah, lots of sexuality as well. Yeah. On the cover though, which uh, again, part of the character's appeal. Um, I think it's great. What do you think? I really like it. It's brilliant, isn't it? I love yeah. uh, the little details like those Wonder Woman carved out of clay and though she's growing up, leaving school, and there's the caveman from the beginning of the yeah. issue, and it's all laid out for you. I think it's a brilliant cover. Best one of the week, mm. by far. I would make you buy Wonder Woman, if you'd never bought Wonder Woman. It helps that it's a wraparound. It does. It's um, it's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Would have been nice to have that be the cover of the trade and wraparound as well, so you can have it in glossy. Yeah. Because, no, yeah, we've got this in the trade paper about gods and mortals. I don't actually have the issue with this. The Princess and the Power was scripted, plotted and pencilled by Greg Potter and George Perez, with inks by Bruce Patterson. In 30,000 BC, a man consumed by hatred over the loss of his hand to a sabre tooth kills a pregnant woman who tries to show nothing but compassion. Her life essence, her very soul, leaves her body, leaving the man confused and alone. At Mount Olympus in 1200 BC, Ares, the god of war, holds court. Man should be brought to Burr and crushed under heel. All this talk from Artemis of peace and understanding is not for the likes of man. Man is savage, and his empires are born of war. The debate rages, and Zeus, ever the fence-sitting politician, wants no part in the decision. As such, Athena, Artemis, Apollo and Hermes initiate their plan without approval. They use Sharon, the ferryman, across the river Styx to the Cavern of Souls, where Gaia has stored the life essence of every woman whose time was ever cut short by man. They now await a rebirth. Artemis commands it, and it is so. All but one of the souls pour forth from Gaia's womb, awakening as fully formed women back on the sun-kissed beaches of Earth, with the firstborn, Hippolyte, or Hippolytia, because I can never get that right, leading the way. They are to be Amazons, the chosen, born to lead humanity in the way of Gaia. Hippolyte, Hippolyte, Hippo, and Antiope, Funny Greek names. H and A. Yeah. Shall rule the sisters, clad in Gaia's girdle, the symbol of trust that is never to be removed, whilst Uri's plots and waits. Years pass. The legacy of the Amazons is tainted by rulers jealous of them. Heracles is dispatched to do battle, to bring them to heel. He is unaware of the behind-the-scenes manipulations of Uri's. Heracles is rewarded for his arrogance by being easily bested by Hippo, and he claims merely to extend the hand of friendship. He also extends his sword. 
the Amazons stand betrayed in the night, and Heracles takes the Amazon citizen and Hippo as a prisoner and forces himself upon her. Hippolyta prays to Athena, who tells her vengeance is not the way. Hippo uses her body to entice the guards and her skills to best him. Free of her shackles, she leads the Amazons to battle, pleading for peace, but Antiope is not as forgiving. Antipia, Antiope, Antiopia? Yeah. Ant, Ant and Deck, Ant and Hippo are not as forgiving, slotting Heracles' men with glee and leaving Hippo to forge her own path. The Amazons are led to an island, a veritable paradise, but where lives an unspeakable evil, an evil the Amazons are to guard for all eternity. Here they will live and grow. Some of their number fall to the evil, but for the most part they live in peace, never aging nor feeling hunger. However, Hippo feels strange. Over the centuries, their contact with the gods has lessened, with only Menelipe still able to forge a connection. It is revealed that of all the souls used, only one was pregnant, and Hippo has that soul. She is told to go to the beach at sunset and create from the clay on the ground the form of a baby. The baby will breathe as if newborn. The child is named Diana and given many gifts of many gods. As she grows, she excels. But in her 18th year, terrible news reaches the Amazon's ears. The world is about to be engulfed in a deadly power, a power that threatens even Paradise Island. One of their number will journey to the man's world to fight this power, an enraged Ares. To that end, a tournament is ordered for the best qualified Amazon. Diana is forbidden from entering, but does so anyway, her face covered by a mask. She defeats all comers, and despite the wishes of her mother, she takes the final challenge, the Flashing Thunder. Using her bracelet, she defeats this mighty weapon, and is given her final reward. The clothes and garb of the goddess Diana, she who the young princess was named after. The crowd roars as she prepares to make the journey to man's world. The joyous celebration is not for all, however, as Hippo ponders what the future will bring. Good that. Mm-hmm. Bit long. Yeah. A lot going on. But it was good. In that uh, in that particular story. Excellent opener. Uh, with the immediate point of the scene, the first uh, two pages not being readily apparent, the woman killed by the caveman will ultimately be the soul reincarnated as Hippolyte, Hippolyte, Hippolyta, Hippolyta, thank you, and her unborn child will become Diana, which also sets out the basic theme of the issue. Man lashes out and destroys, woman tries to communicate first and create. Yeah. It's Mad Max Fury Road. It, it is. All over I think it. we shouldn't read this, it's, it's just feminist propaganda. It is. It's yeah. absolutely feminist propaganda. <laughs> Yeah. So that's okay. Maybe I'm a propagandic feminist. <laughs> I don't know. It's possible. It, yeah. Uh, Perez's version of Olympus, in addition to being absolutely gorgeous, owes a great deal to Escher, and his labyrinth paintings were each staircases. You yeah. know what I'm on about. Which the odd angled thing. Is yeah. apparent in one of the panels. With yeah. Walking sideways. Yeah. And uh, so that's there's, there's, there's that. The, it's obvious. That, isn't it? Yeah. I wasn't spotted anything that I don't suppose uh, anyone spotted before. Uh, this builds upon his work from the new Teen Titans. I do like that the owl is there from Clash of the Titans. Right, okay. I don't think it is that owl. <laughs> that mechanical robot owl. Oh, yeah. You know, everyone should have a mechanical robot owl. Yeah. And everyone should have a Harry Hamlin to operate it for you. <laughs> Unless he's beating up on Logan Eccles. Which, you know, it's not very nice, is it? When he does that. I didn't think so, anyway. Uh, Zeus... In these opening pages where they're discussing what the Amazon should do about man is the consummate politician in that he just does not want to get involved in anything that can be considered controversial. 
Yeah. So he abstains from having any involvement. Yeah, deal with it yourselves. He's just going around sleeping with women. Yeah, when you're like, aren't you the leader, though? And he's the father of most people. Is he? In, in Greece, yeah. Is he the father of most of the people? That Zeus, Zeus slept around a lot. What? So she, did she not do that? Well, was she just dutiful? Yeah. Uh, one can argue that the, this is a subtext of the story. Yeah. Similar to the Roman Empire, once a leader becomes complacent and arrogant, they lose the thing that made them good leaders in the first place. Mm. And once one feels that it's the right to be in charge, it inevitably leads to their downfall. Perez doesn't really dwell on the fall of the gods, though. No. I mean, I don't know whether that became a storyline later on. It's merely pointed out that they feel their time is up and it may be time for a new era, which is part of Greek mythology, isn't it? Yeah. Who mourns for Adonai? I'm not really all that interested in Greek mythology, so I kind of like that it wasn't important. I like it when it's done well. It never bothers me when a story builds on Greek mythology or takes elements from Greek mythology, and I thought this did a really good job with it. Obviously, Heracles did, in the mythology, rape... Um, Wonder Woman's mum, Hippolyta. Hippolytia. Yeah. Say it again. Hippolyta. That's it. Because it was referenced in JLA Avengers, if you remember. Yeah. Uh, whereas Wonder Woman was like, yeah, I know you. And he's like, what are you talking about, woman? Yeah. Your mother was willing and able. And she punches it. Mm. So it was referenced in that as well. So Heracles I- and Hercules of different names, but look exactly, exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if there was... Um, a Marvel, uh, Marvel lawyer on side. Can Marvel and DC copyright mythology? I don't think they can. To be honest. Maybe that's why they called him Heracles, though. Could be. Which is his Greek mythology name, isn't it? Yeah. Not just Hercules. But maybe the fact that Marvel have a Hercules, who looks exactly like this. Yeah. Um, maybe that's why they changed his name. Yeah, that's fair enough. Once upon a time, I would have said that these opening scenes was why Wonder Woman would struggle in a film or TV a- adaptation nowadays. You know, yeah. all these togas. But if Marvel can pull off Asgard mm. and make it work, make it work, I'm sure they can do Greek mythology. In fact, a good director could film this comic, yeah, as is, and make it work. Just do it like um, Spartacus. Yeah, make it like Spartacus. Although kids couldn't watch it then. Maybe but, just tone yeah. down the violence a bit. Have it on Netflix. Yeah, tone down the violence and the nudity, and uh, maybe that would work. Yeah, Michael said there's an awful lot of mythology in this. But it's done as, like, background material in a lot of ways, so it doesn't alienate the audience or people mm. who, who aren't interested in Greek mythology. Most interesting to me, um, as a rule, is the River Styx, which is often portrayed as the entrance to the afterlife and guarded, as it is here, by Sharon. Achilles' strength comes from being dipped in the River Styx. Right, okay. And he got held by his foot, yeah. which is why his heel... Right, because that didn't go in the water. That's, and that's where Achilles' heel come from. Right. So that's a little bit of mythology for you. Uh, the story in this issue actually spans a considerable amount of time, doesn't it? Yeah. It goes from 30,000 BC to 1987. Yeah. So there's a lot of time covered in this story. And what's very... I thought was really interesting how mature this book was. Yeah. I mean, we're a couple of months, months, years really, not months, away from Vertigo which was mature readers, you know, labelled mature readers. But for my money, this was proper mature storytelling. There's a lot of sex, there's a lot of nudity, there's a lot of violence Mm. in this book. Plus, it's very intricate in the way that it's plotted, dealing with, you know, betrayal and backstabbing and treachery and larger-than-life characters. But it's very understated 
Yeah. In how it's all handled. Like, in some writer's hands, it would be blatant. It would be sensationalistic. Yeah. And a 12-year-old could read this Mm. and enjoy it, whilst, you know, some of the more uncomfortable moments, such as Heracles' rape of... Hippolyta. Thank you. uh, ...are handled very sensitively. Yeah. So... As an adult, I think you get a bit more out of this than maybe you do as a kid. Mm. But a kid could certainly enjoy it and read it and probably learn something inadvertently about Greek mythology. Yeah. You tricked me into learning that in South Park. Every every male god slept with every male... Uh, female. Well, my takeaway from this is that men are scum. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. One of the things that stuck out to me was, was Diana. Yeah. If none of them age, if they're all immortal... Why does Diana age, and when will she stop, or so, will she ever stop? I don't know. Does she stop at... She, well, she's 18 here. Or does it slow down the older she gets? I don't know. Does she stop at 18? Because she's the first child born Yeah. on uh, on Paradise Island. Because we see her age, yeah. unlike everyone else, so does she keep on aging until she die? What, because she's not born of the gods, she's not born of Gaia's womb? Yeah. Because she was carved from clay... Will she eventually die of old age? I don't know. It's a very good question. Mm. She's still an Amazon princess. So, like, does she just stop aging at 18, 19 years of age? Could do. So is she still 18, 19? But she's a lot more... In this, she's drawn to look like an 18-year-old girl, young woman. Whereas in comics after this, she's grown... She's shown as much more older and mature. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. That one I don't have the answer to because I've I've not read much of Wonder Woman apart from this and John Byrne's run. Right. But whether she's supposed to be 18, 19 years of age in perpetuity because she is now only drawn to look about thirty. Yeah, twenty-five, thirty, something like that. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Uh, Heracles ultimately proves himself unworthy of our trust because he's a man in this particular story. Yeah. And he cannot defeat Hippolyta in battle. Because she bests him easily. Yeah. She takes him out because he's an arrogant... I was going to say something there, but I won't say something. It rhymes with Gottmucker. <laughs> but he isn't, is he? No. Well, but he is, though, sorry. Yeah. He is totally that. And she defeats him with very little problem. So he resorts to treachery, drugging her and attacking the Amazons in the night. He then rapes her to make her, as he says, a real woman. Yeah. What a catch. <laughs> what a prince of a guy this Heracles is. If I have a problem with this book, and I don't, really, it's that pretty much all men are depicted as treacherous, murderous, liars and hypocrites. Yeah. Maybe maybe not... What's his name with the winged feet? Hermes. Oh, well, he, he gives Diana his powers. Yeah. But that's, that's essentially all men were in, in Greek mythology. Well... They were brute, lying brute strength. Lying buggers. They'd, they'd use their nod to plough through life. Right, okay, fair enough. All right. Uh, I did like that Hippolyta was a strong character. Uh, she's not afraid to use all the weapons at her disposal to escape, using her naked body to entice the guard in. Mm. And her being tied up as well may have played into a fantasy that he may have had, I don't know. Uh, exploiting a very male weakness, though. Yeah. Which she does with a plum, And then leads the Amazons to victory. It doesn't make clear what happens to Heracles. No. He just kind of disappears... And he's conspicuous by his absence in the battle, isn't he? Mm. It's like he, he disappears off somewhere after making her a real woman. <laughs> Thanks, Heracles. And then he goes. Oh, he leaves for Troy. That's yeah. why. Have you ever seen Troy? I'm, I'm not. 
No, me neither. Um, so that's why he's not around. Right, that makes sense. So I presume he comes back in a later issue. He could do, yeah. Or has he never been tried to find Paradise Island? And Well, no one can find it, other yeah. than Steve Trevor. Other than Steve Trevor, yeah. And Aquaman. I did like the conflictive emotions as well, that initially she craves revenge, but quickly learns that that wouldn't put her on the right path. Antiope. Uh, I was no truck with forgiveness. Mm. Slaughters Heracles' men yeah. with glee. She actually really enjoys it, which is fine. The warriors mm. were. Yeah, absolutely. She's Klingon. I am yeah. Klingon! Right, um... This next bit I invite correspondence on. Right. And I'm, I'm very interested in what you have to say about it. The Amazons wore bracelets as a symbol of being held in bondage by Heracles. Yeah. And a reminder, a punishment, to never err again. I thought that was actually a little bit counterproductive. Right. Surely the first act of a slave is to shed the, that which held them in thrall. Yeah. Isn't it? And never wear that again. Mm. That would seem to me to be the first thing. Second, the message seems really garbled. Right. With that. Hippolyte, Hippolyte, not slaying Heracles was what led them into servitude and being defeated. Yeah. So... They could have avoided all that pointless bloodshed if she'd killed him in one-on-one battle. Yeah, but is that what the goddesses wanted? No. Is it the right she, thing to do she if was it's a, efficient? She was obeying the Amazon way and got a lot of people killed. Whereas that one death, if she'd killed him at that point, could have created a lasting peace. When Heracles' men went, oh, she's killed Heracles. Eh, maybe we'll just work with these people instead of fighting them. But then would it have turned into a greater war when word got back that Heracles was killed? Do you think? If, if, if Hippolyta kills him at the beginning, there's no one, why is the, what is the need for them to fight? A challenge? They've, they've killed, they've damaged their pride. So you're saying it probably would have just led to bloodshed anywhere? Yeah. So bloodshed is ultimately inevitable. I think that's one of the messages they were, they were shown in this. That man is ultimately just going to fight, no matter what happens. Yeah. Right, okay. No, I can go with your interpretation of it. Because that's just when I was reading it, I thought, if she'd have killed him then, yeah. all of this could have been avoided. So that one death would have saved many lives. Yeah. Which I thought was an interesting moral quandary to be pondering when reading a Wonder Woman comic book. Yeah. But if, if the Batman kills the Joker, it'd save lives, but would someone else step in? I know, but you're looking at a, a completely different thing, though. You're looking at the Batman being a vigilante. The minute he kills somebody, he's, he's crossed a, that yeah. line. He's a murderer. Commissioner Gordon has to bring him in. These are warriors fighting a battle. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know she's following Gaia's teachings, but this this is what I'm interested in, in sparking a debate. I would like to hear what the audience think about this. Do, is the opinion the, that... Had she killed him when she could, all of this bloodshed would have been avoided. Or would it, as you were pointing out, would have inevitably happened. Mm. As as uh, Ares keeps pointing out, this is man's way. He yeah. will just fight. Because ultimately he's a baser creature. Mm. And also, what do you think about the, the, ne- the, the bracelets? Wearing um, them as a symbol of the being into bondage and being taken. I think that works because it's a punishment... Right. They're being forced to wear their shame and failures. And the gods in Greek mythology were very big on punishment. They were, weren't they? Mm. Alright. Okay, 
just thought that was a, that was a couple of interesting things that struck me whilst I was reading this, and I just thought I just wondered what other people thought about it. What struck me was the gun. Yes. I mean, they pay a bit of lip service as to what it is and where they got it from, mm. but they don't really explain it. It feels a bit out of place. The, well, I thought the scene with the gun was very interesting because the Amazons are warriors. They yeah. fight. And they fight to kill when necessary, but they do up close and personal. Mm. They're not about, you know, fighting from a distance. They will gut you where you stand. But the gun just horrified them. Diana is visibly shaken by the existence of a weapon that can do so much damage at long distance. And it is even referred to as an abomination by, is it Philippus? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? So that's what interested me about the scene. And again, you're looking at a weapon created by man. Yeah. That the gods, or in this case the Amazons, are deeply disturbed by. And she refers to it as as something coming from the tragedy. Yeah, but we don't find out what that is. Well, what tragedy, though? Because let's say it's from a world war, even though it's a more recent gun. Um, That would mean that the, the Amazonians went to the Earth to get it or oh. they were alive by then or were killed during that time or somebody came here right again I don't know I'm, I'm presuming that he's setting up seeds for later on because I've only ever read this first trade and it was a long time ago and I've got volumes 2, 3 and 4 and just never got around to reading them right. even though I actually thought this was fantastic on a first issue standpoint but that's what I'm saying to you none of the other two provoke this level of thought None of the other two were this provocative yeah. in it. There was a couple of scenes in this that genuinely did make me think mm. about what it was depicting and what was Perez saying here. I mean, Wonder Woman is a, a feminine icon, so there are certain elements of her that represent that particular ideal. Which I do find a bit funny, because, Why? let's be honest, she was created by the guy who shared a mistress with his wife and was very into that kind of stuff. And as you pointed out, bondage is a big part, is of, a big part of, of this story and Wonder Woman's mythology. Yeah. So there's a, there's a very interesting contradiction inherent in the character Yeah. from what she's become to be known for from where she came. Yeah. I, this story does as good a job as any of marrying all of that and making it all work. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah, an interesting blending of Greek mythology and Wonder Woman lore. Easily the best of the three that we've covered tonight. Yeah. By, yeah. by far. Now, granted, that's not really a fair comparison, because the actual new starts for Superman and Batman were in Man of Steel 1 and Batman 404, respectively. And of those, the Superman story is most like this one, in that it retells the legend in one issue, both of which culminate in a full-page final splash of the hero in costume. This scores high, for me anyway, for being a dense and really quite compelling read, with a lot of material mined from the idea that women are creators and men are destroyers. Yeah. Uh, That was quite an interesting viewpoint that was put forth in this comic. Um, Perez's art is lovely not quite as good as when he inks himself but Bruce Patterson doesn't over ink him which you know is nice Perez has a very delicate line and whilst this doesn't look as good as say Romeo Tangal it's still clearly George Perez yeah and I think the only way it would have looked better is if he'd inked himself which he didn't 
It probably goes without saying that Perez is a master of the comic's form, but never is that more apparent than in this comic, in an era now that we're living in, where comics pages sometimes have only four to six panels per page, and often no more than ten, eight, ten words per panel. This was positively packed with pages sometimes having as many as ten, sometimes twelve panels per page, and yet it never feels cramped or overwritten, even with the fact that there's ample dialogue in each panel. Mm. There's a lot to read in this comic. All in all, this was an excellent beginning for the Amazon princess. Because when I was reading this, I just kept looking, showing you, didn't I? Look, look at all them words on that page. But it was it was absolutely fantastic. What did you think of it? I really liked it. Top, it, it top was flight, my favourite of the week. Oh, easily. Much better than the suit. The plot makes sense. Yeah. Which puts it ahead of the, the Superman one. And in terms of the Batman one, it's just a better package all round. Yeah. You know, the Batman one, the story's very campy, despite trying to be street. Mm. And this is what it is. It's Greek mythology with Wonder Woman in it. And it works absolutely magnificently. Every now and again, we will come across a comic book. And we've done this throughout the history of the show. Where you'll say you could give this to any competent director. Yeah. With a decent budget and say, film that. And it works. And we've yet to have that. We have yet to have an actual comic book adaptation that is an adaptation of an actual comic book. Yeah. It's not happened, has it, yet? We just had stories. Yeah, or bits and pieces, elements. Yeah. Because, you know, even Civil War is not going to be an adaptation of Civil War, because it can't be well, within the Marvel Universe. Thank God. Yes, that that is a very good point. Yes. Thank Ares, or Zeus, or whoever the gods of uh, this particular comic book was. It was Zeus, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's it for the big three. Next time, we'll be looking at the second tier DC heroes, none of which were rebooted post-crisis. The Green Lantern, the Green Arrow, and the Flash. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. And no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, or one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.